One of the voices you're about to hear belongs to a man who is a legendary and iconic sports broadcaster here in the Northern Territory. I'm really excited to share his story with you. My name's Jessong and you're listening to another episode of Spun Stories, a live storytelling night in Darwin. That recognisable voice, one that is enduring in sports broadcasting in the Northern Territory, belongs to Charlie King. Charlie is the NT Senior Australian of the Year, and he learnt a lot from his parents, who, at the time, shouldn't have ended up together. Charlie's father was an Anglo man, and his epic odyssey to the north on a Malvern Star bike put him in the path of Charlie's mother. She was a Gurindji woman who was part of the stolen generation. And at the time, this unconventional relationship readied Charlie for a life of standing up for what he believes in. The family's rebellious spirit has trickled down to Charlie's daughter, Emma, whose voice you'll also hear. My dad was an incredible man, I must tell you. He came from a well-to-do family, born in Corowa, in New South Wales on the border, and his family were well-to-do. They owned the hotel. They owned a business. I think they own burly underwear. <laughs> I think they own that. So they were pretty well-to-do and they were Irish people. And um, Dad had a sister, Myra, and he left home when he was 17. He wanted to be a bike rider. And he'd already shown good form in Corowa and Rutherglen and Albury and those other places around there that he was pretty good so he got a chance to go to Melbourne and he joined the Sandringham Bike Club. This is about 1924. And whilst he was there, he met a man by the name of Bruce Small. Bruce had invented a bike, a Malvern Star bike. No gears, just a Malvern Star bike. And what he was looking for was someone to ride the bike around Australia and show just how good it was, because he was a businessman, entrepreneurial. He wanted to sell it and make it a really important bike that everyone wanted. And he stumbled across my dad, who was 19 at the time. And he said, Jack, you're a good young bike rider. Would you be interested in riding this around Australia, this Malvern Star bike that I've just invented? And dad looked at it and he said, why not? (laughs) Now, he was away from home. He wasn't living with his family. And his friend Basil Nixon was another good bike rider, was at the Sandringham Club as well. So he said to Basil, do you want to ride with me and we'll ride around Australia? And Basil, again, away from his family, said, yes, we will do it. So I've got to tell you, they agreed to ride the bike around Australia in 1926, so we're going to leave Melbourne. What John Richard King didn't know, as he got on that Melbourne Star bike and headed north out of Melbourne towards Brisbane, it would be the last time he would see Melbourne. It would be the last time, was the last time he would see his family. He was on a journey that was going to take him to the Badlands, to here, to Darwin. <laughs> he, he, knew no, he knew nothing about that. They just rode. So he and Basil left Melbourne on their ride. They headed towards Brisbane. The roads weren't too bad in 1926, so they made good time. They got to Brisbane. Basil never told Dad that he had a pistol in his pocket. He carried a pistol with him because he was afraid of Aboriginal people. He read somewhere they were cannibals, and they had particular liking for non-Aboriginal people if they got hold of them. So he had the bike and he's had the gun in his pocket and they rode as far as they got to Brisbane. I'm going to pause there 
and go across to my mum. Ningari was her name. She was born on Limbanya Station. Her father, as I said, was the white policeman. Her mother was named Tom. I said, why, why, why Tom, mum? And she told me because she worked like a man, but the real reason she didn't tell me is that she couldn't say her name. She wouldn't say her name in respect of her mother. So her name was Tom and her dad's name was William. She was born there and then one day uh, they arrived to take the children away and they took her and her sister Maggie and her cousin Auntie Daisy Ruddick and they put them on horses and they took them away from their people and they brought them to the Victoria River. They put them on a boat along the Victoria River out to the sea around here to Darwin and then probably here right behind me, they probably passed here on that motor launch with three kids in there, probably still shaking, probably still afraid, heading to Darwin, heading to an unknown future, down here to the wharf and taken from there to the Carlin compound. They might have the Anglican church, which is over there. Probably wasn't there then, but some couple of years later, that's where John Richard King stood with his bike that he was riding and a spare bike trying to raise money to continue his journey around Australia. She didn't know that. He didn't know that. So she was at the Carlin compound. Let's go back to Brisbane. John and Basil are there. They point their bikes west and they head towards Mount Isa. The roads are still not too bad. And then they get to Mount Isa and now they've got to head north, as I said before, to the Badlands. No roads, just tracks. And they made pretty good time, even though it was pretty rough. And Basil, south of Catherine, fell off his bike, went head over heels, landed on the ground, the gun went off, shot him in the leg. So he had a bullet lodged in his thigh and his right leg. They're miles from anywhere. There's nothing they can do about it. He rode with the bullet in his leg from south of Catherine all the way to Darwin, with Dad trying to help him all the way, trying to stop bleeding, trying to do all the things. By the time he got here, it had turned gangrenous. They just couldn't do anything here, so they put him on a boat and send him back to where he came from, back to Melbourne to do some work on it. So John Richard King, my dad, is left here with a uh, bike, no money, no chance of going forward, can't go backwards. What can he do? So he tried desperately in front of the old Terminus Hotel to get someone to help him and raise some money. None of it was forthcoming. So in the end, this little Irishman with his red hair and his fair skin says, I'm going to have to work for a living. So he tried it. They were working on Lud Miller at that time. They were digging the roads. And so he worked there for them. Off came the shirt, working in the hot sun. And then he got sunstroke pretty badly and taken from there to the Royal Darwin Hospital. Meanwhile, Ningardi, whose now name was Ruby Jane Smith, had left Carlin Compound as she grew older and finished up at Royal Darwin Hospital. They get closer to each other and she's in the hospital and she's the domestic. And she's given a choice of a few wards. Ruby, you can do that one, that one or that one. She said, I'll take that one. And that's the ward where John Richard King lay in a coma. And she went in and she started cleaning it. The walls are all white, the floor's white, the sheets are white. There's an Aboriginal woman with a white uniform on. John Richard King opens his eyes from the coma, sees her standing at the foot of the bed, 
and says, my goodness, I've died and gone to heaven and all the angels are Aboriginal. <laughs> but he said he felt an instant attraction to her. She disputed that. <laughs> but they got to know one another and then Dad had to do uh, what he knew he had to do, was seek permission from Dr Cecil Cook, the protector of Aborigines, to allow Mum to go to the movies with him. And so once he got out of hospital, he got permission and they went to the old star village here and went to the movies and Dad said it was the most romantic night of his life. He said he knew then that this was going to be a great future. Mum said he went to sleep five minutes in and never said a word. <laughs> but love conquers all. Love conquers all. And in the end, he decided that they should get married. And so he wrote to the protector of Aborigines again and he said, I want to marry this woman. And at that time, ladies and gentlemen, the understanding is this. The non-Aboriginal person marries the Aboriginal woman. The deal is you don't take them back to their people. You don't take them back to their country. You don't encourage them to speak their language, so you try to cut the connection. That was the deal. That was the, that was the expectation, not for John Richard King. As soon as they got married, he had a plan. I will take her back home. I'll take her back to Catherine. I'm not sure where Limbunya Station is. I'm not sure where the Kalkarinji or the Grinji people, but I know it's west. So they went back there and um, headed towards where mum's family were. They got some horses in Catherine. I think it took them about over three to four weeks before they found where mum's people were and they found Tom. She was still alive and she was so happy to see her daughter and the daughter was so happy to see the mother that they settled down and stayed there for about a year, lived on country with his grandmother and mum. And so mum always said to us later on in life, the reason I'm never bitter about that is because I went back to my family. I went back and I spent time and so did my husband and we sat down with our people and we've come out of that much better people. She said, when things happen in your life, don't get bitter, get better. Do you know what? I've never forgotten that. Don't get bitter, get better. And I try not to get bitter. I try to get better whenever I can when I think about things. So I was really proud of them. They got married and there's a huge King dynasty in the Northern Territory. So they had 11 children. Eight girls and three boys. The boys, unfortunately, didn't produce any King children. So the name King is going to end now, our name King, unless, of course, my present daughter keeps her name, which she might, because maybe she's a bit rebellious. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm going to introduce her to you. Her name's Emma King. She's 13. Hello. Yes, I do think I'll be keeping my name. So the most rebellious thing I've done recently is actually tell this entire story when my dad told me not to. <laughs> so when I was about seven, I was in a cafe and some Aboriginal people came in and the people in the shop told them that they had to leave. They were not allowed in there. And I remember I was seven and I was so confused. Like, why are people that look like my dad, they look like my nana, why are they being told to leave for no reason? I was confused, but I also knew that it was wrong. And that helped me, that sort of pushed me onto this path of always, like, standing up for what I believe in and also, like, standing up for people who don't have a voice to, like, stand up 
for themselves. And so, like, because of this, I'm usually the most outspoken person in my class. But that's because, like, whenever I see racism or sexism, I call it out. Like, it's become a reflex for me whenever I hear it. Like, that's just what I do. And so, just recently, a kid in my class made a racist joke and my reflex, you know, called him out on it. And he said to me, I've been told this before, why can't you just take a joke? And I was like, well, yeah, I can take a joke. That wasn't a joke. You're dehumanising Aboriginal people. It's different. It's not funny. Sometimes when I'm talking to adults about things like sexism or racism, they'll tell me that we live in Australia, like we live in a first world country. That's not needed here. Like racial activism, feminism, that's not necessary here because we all have the same rights. But it is needed here. As a 13-year-old Aboriginal girl, I can tell you that sexism and racism does exist here. I see it. Like when I'm driving down the street and I see a car with the C-U-N-N-T sticker on the back of it, I'm reminded that I live in a society that accepts sexism and it accepts racism. So my dad didn't want me to tell this story because he thought I might become like more of a target at school. But that's not in my nature to like be quiet about these sorts of things. Like I have to speak up about it. I just have to, you know? And that comes from my nana and pop and that comes from my mum and it comes from my dad who spent his life doing that. Charlie King is a legend around these parts and you can absolutely hear why. And his daughter, Emma, is definitely fast-tracking her way to legend status as well, and she's only 13. Charlie and Emma shared their story at a SMUN event in 2018 where the theme was rebellion. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with Darwin, so I'm just going to give you a little crash course on our tropical town – Darwin's a city that's actually closer to Dili in East Timor than it is to any other major city in Australia. Darwin and the Northern Territory are known for a laid-back attitude, uh, for piercing electrical storms, and here in the top end, for crocodiles and cyclones. But if you dig just beneath the surface, you'll find a tantalising hum of some pretty incredible people with surprising stories. The SPUN team work really hard to find these everyday Territorians and help to bring their stories to life. The aim is to provide a platform to connect communities and trigger conversation. It's a real privilege to peer into the lives of others, so I hope that wherever you're listening, it provokes an interest in those around you. Story production for this episode came from Kylie Stevenson. Sound production by Gaia Osborne. Sound editing by Ryan MacArthur. And music by Sam Carmody. We're one of the projects out of the Creative Production House Story Projects. And we thank Darwin International Airport for their generous funding support. At SPUN, we acknowledge and are grateful to our first storytellers, the Larrakia people. 
the traditional custodians of the lands on which we gather to connect through story. My name's Jess Ong. Thanks for listening.